Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. Um, I'm your new bub, B, and today is another episode of the Quarantine Digital Book Club. Today I am joined by the author of the Swords and Fire trilogy, by someone who I, I've seen is, a, is an avid tabletop role player and LARPer, so I'm very excited about that, and uh, who has a new book coming out in June called The Obsidian Tower that we're going to talk about. Uh, so it's Melissa Caruso. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Yeah, so before we get into everything, do you want to sort of introduce yourself and talk about the book a little bit? Uh, sure. Well, let's see. I'm Melissa Crusoe. The Swords and Fire trilogy was my um, first trilogy that starts with the Tethered Mage. And the Obsidian Tower is set in the same world, but it's 150 years later. And uh, with new characters and everything, it's really a new story. And it is about uh, young women with uh, sort of fatally flawed magic who is the warden of this weird creepy ancient castle that has this door in it that there's this big commandment never to open and it's about what happens on one really super bad night when uh in the middle of diplomatic negotiations everything goes wrong she winds up with blood in her hands and uh terrible ancient magics may be unleashed yeah (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, yeah, I, I just finished reading it last night, I think, and it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a barn burner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's, there's never a moment when stakes aren't being raised and, like, stuff isn't about to go down or currently going down. It's, yeah. Well, thank Um, you very much. That was, it took many drafts to get it to the point where stakes were never (laughs) leveling out, so. (laughs) Yeah. Just, uh, just for, you know, for re- listeners like myself, maybe, who, uh, who might not have read your previous trilogy, would you like, would you recommend jumping in with this one or, or starting with the, the original trilogy or? I think you can really do them in either order. I tried very hard to make sure that, uh, there wouldn't be any presumed knowledge in the new trilogy and also that there wouldn't be spoilers for the first trilogy in the new trilogy. I mean, like, okay, certain countries are still around, but <laughs> other than that, <laughs> you know, I tried to, I tried to keep it pretty spoiler free. So, uh. Tone-wise, the the uh, first trilogy is more like intrigue and uh, fancy parties kind of flavor to it, whereas uh, uh, Rooks and Ruin, the new trilogy that starts with the Obsidian Tower, is more like creepy gothic castles, uh, and uh, and it has a, a bit more of um I don't know a bit a bit of a creepier feel um, overall, I would say. But there, but you can read them in either order, however it strikes you. Um, if I absolutely was forced to pick an order, I might say read the first ones first, just because th- there are some things that might be slightly less surprising for you in the first trilogy if you read the second one first. But really, you yeah. can read them in either order, and it's not a problem. Cool. Both uh, fancy parties and gothic castles are absolutely my jam. So excellent. I may uh, I may have to go back and grab the, th- the trilogy after <laughs> um, after this conversation. Wonderful. So yeah, do you want to get us kicked off with a uh, with a reading? Sure. So uh, the what I picked is uh, just where you get introduced to not really a character per se, but the setting of the book, which almost works like a character. Um, so, and the, the one thing that's helpful to know is uh, before I do the reading is just that my main character has uh, her magic is flawed. So that basically if she touches somebody, there's a good chance that they're going to die. All right. Gloaming guard was really several castles caught in the act of devouring each other. Build the castle high and strong, the gloaming lore said, and each successive ruler had taken that as license to impose their own architectural architectural fancies upon the place. The Black Tower reared up stark and ominous at the center. 
more ancient than the country of Askandar itself. An old stone keep surrounded it, buried in fantastical additions woven of living trees and vines. The stark curving ribs of the bone palace clawed at the sky on one side, and the perpetual scent of wood smoke bathed the sharp peaked roofs of the great lodge on the other. My grandmother's predecessor had attempted to build a comfortable wood-paneled manor house smack in the front and center. Each new witch lord had run roughshod over the building plans of those who came before them, and the whole place was a glorious mess of hidden doors and dead-end staircases and windows opening into blank walls. This made the castle a confusing maze for visitors, but for me it was perfect. I could navigate through the odd leftover spaces and closed-off areas, keeping away from the main halls with their deadly risk of bumping into a sprinting page or distracted servant. I haunted my own castle like a ghost. Excellent. Um, I I love I love the castle and I love how how much of a character it is. Um, and specifically, like going back to the the question of you know uh, whether to read this first or to to jump back to the original trilogy. Um, I I when I started reading this, did not realize there was a a trilogy that it, that had already built this world before. And I was like, this is, like, really interesting. You, like, you just jump straight into the world building here. Like, obviously you get a sense of Rick's and who she is at the very beginning of the book. But there's also just constantly, like, I mean, I am just talking in circles around myself <laughs> No, it's right fine. Now. It's totally cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, yeah, okay. We'll see if that makes the edit. you know it's all good that's why you have edits (laughs) yeah um okay what i'm trying to say is i i I started the book and was like really fascinated by the world building and um you know it's the kind of book that has a a map in the front so i it was you know i feel like that's usually a tell that there's going to be some world building happening if uh, if the author has made a map (laughs) Um, is, is the map something you personally drew or is it like, no, uh, uh, Orbit's map guy is Tim Paul and he's incredible. Uh, I did a sketch. Uh, I don't, I don't have that level of map making artistry skills. I did like a really cruddy sketch with like, you know, my scrawled bad handwriting and like there were mountains here and stuff. And he, and he did the, uh, the fancy map. It's actually a modification of the map that occurs in, since it's the same world in the original trilogy, but with additions and changes because it's 150 years later. Yeah. I have a advanced retail copy or advanced reader copy. And I just saw you tweet out something that was, uh, I think it had a, a couple more details in the, in the final version than in the advanced reader copy even. Yeah. They <laughs> so. might have the old map in the, in the advanced copy. I forget. <laughs> I I noticed that specifically because there's a, a an important location uh, to early on in the book called Windfall Island, and I was looking for it on the map, and it wasn't labeled. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be handy to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I sort of had pieced it together. I was like, it's probably this little island, and yeah. I was right. But Yay. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's that's testament to to the fact that you are like very good at um, writing really descriptively about a place. Um, which I think is sort of what I was <laughs> talking circles around when talking about Glomingard, because yeah, the the sort of hidden passageways and um, and the big halls and everything and the the sort of accretion of architecture is all described in a way that that feels very real, even to someone like me who doesn't do great with like imagining fictional spaces. Ah, uh, um, well, and. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, uh, thank you. And uh, uh, it actually, the idea for Gloaming Guard came 
partly from a recurring dream that I have, huh. uh, where, uh, you know, where I'm just, uh, and it's, it's a little different every time, but I have a dream where I'm in like a big old house or a castle or something where I just do keep finding, like, uh, usually I'm, I'm either exploring it or running and hiding from something in the dream. And I'll like, oh, I'll go into the back of a closet and find a door and that'll go up a staircase. And then that'll be between the walls and like all these weird hidden spaces. It just keeps going on and on like a, a really unrealistically, uh, large distance and you just keep finding different levels and new places in it. And so I was trying to pull on kind of that feeling uh, when I was designing Gloomy Guard. That's really interesting. Um, I I would not have pegged the, the writing as particularly dreamlike, but it, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like, um, yeah, a, a big, <laughs> a big castle that's a bunch of different castles all mushed together is totally a a dream image but i was trying to make it, i'm glad it didn't feel like a dream because of course i'm trying to give it reality and make it feel like a real lived in space that for the main character was totally natural because she grew up there so yeah for her this is home doesn't everybody have like weird rooms made out of bones in their house <laughs> Why? yeah <laughs> and and of course everyone lives with their grandmother who is an immortal witch lord yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's that's interesting because i yeah, there's a there is a very different book in here that is that leans much more on like surrealism, but is in the same setting. And I don't know that that would be an interesting sort of idea. But it, I think it's useful to bring up because it highlights how um, how grounded a lot of a lot of this book is, even though, you know, it's a little weird to say like this book about a woman who was born with broken magic uh, that kills anyone she touches is a grounded novel. Uh, <laughs> but uh, like one of the things I was, I was noticing a lot in the world building stuff specifically is um, it's it's never far away from whatever's going on. There's constant like not constant, but like regular. Um, I, I keep my brain keeps thinking the word asides, but that's not true at all. Um, it regularly goes back like no matter what the um, what Rix is going through, for instance, it's never far from her mind that there are political implications across this whole land to all of her actions. And I found that really interesting is a weak word. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Enjoyable. I don't know. (laughs) I liked it. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, that was, um, uh, it was actually kind of tricky to blend it in because on the one hand, the whole story does take place in one location over really just like, uh, I forget, but like a week or something, it really doesn't take very long. And, uh, with this, uh, cast of characters who are just the people who happen to be in the castle while it's happening. Um, but the implications are huge and are global and it was hard, uh, uh, during edits, there was a lot of trying to really weave those together and be like, okay, there's this personal story that's about, um, you know, these people and how they're interacting in the castle, but it's also, uh, going to have these implications for the whole world, uh, how it, how it pans out. And, and, and I'm making that feel present even though the outside is almost cut off for a lot of it was uh, was hard. So I'm glad <laughs> that it sounds like it may have come across. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and then in sort of in conjunction with that, one of the things I was thinking about was like the structure of the of the book. Um, or just speaking about the beginning still mostly, like you it's a lot of uh, sort of shorter sections, like not necessarily chapter breaks, but like, you know, mid chapter breaks happen fairly regularly which I feel like makes it a lot easier to like 
to take a breath when you're like, like, I'm trying to absorb this whole world all very quickly. And then it's like, okay, there's a pause here. I can sit down and think about this for a second and then jump back in. Um, which is another thing I like appreciated. And I'm wondering if that was like a conscious structural decision or just like how, how the writing came out or, you know, well, uh, probably some mixture. <laughs> I actually reworked the beginning of this book so many times. Uh, Cause I knew there's this sort of key, uh, there's this key moment a few chapters in and I knew what was going to happen um, there and that was clear but in terms of how I was leading up to that and what was immediately following it because I did I needed to give the reader a chance to digest the setting uh, and to make sure they knew um, what they needed so that the full uh, ramifications of everything that was happening would make sense and give them the political situation and introduce a bunch of characters. And it was a lot. Uh, but I, uh, I had to make sure that that had all been absorbed in a way that wouldn't um, put people off, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and that when the big events start happening after which, you know, I try to just keep that, keep them coming, that, that everybody would have absorbed what they need to know for them to have their full impact and not be like, wait, what, why does this yeah. matter? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, so it, it took a lot of reworking to try and get it to a place where it would have a, a smooth flow and not feel like you're hitting a wall of expositional text. Um, but that you would still have the information you need for the, uh, the plot hits to land and have a full impact. So it, yeah, not effortless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I saw I would when I was browsing your Twitter, I saw it seems like you're a you're a big outliner. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I always outline and then I always wind up revising the outline as I go and then, you know, revising again for edits and stuff. But I like I like to have it there. Um, it helps me uh, see the structure at a more of a pulled back level so I can make sure I'm not wandering off down some rat hole from whence I will never emerge. Totally. <laughs> I, yeah, I am. Uh, I don't write very much fiction, but even in like more critical things, I am terrible about outlining and I often end up <laughs> falling down rabbit holes and then being like, well, this essay I was writing about a video game is now about uh, a city. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Always danger. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think that that rewriting and that outlining like paid off in this for me like as as a reader at least yeah and okay i'm i'm gonna stop complaining about not being able to talk about spoilers at some point (laughs) during my run of this podcast it's hard to talk about this book without giving spoilers i have trouble talking about this book without giving spoilers because like there's an early twist there after which stuff changes and if you can't talk Mm -hmm. about it then it's a little hard (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Um I think I'll 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 just reiterate my policy from the last episode and say that um to the listeners if I if I ask a question that seems vague um what I'm doing is not not thinking of a specific thing. <laughs> what I'm doing is trying not to mention that specific thing to still get at right. Uh, you know, some some hopefully interesting things. So that said, I I want to talk about the rookery. I don't think that's too spoilery. Yeah, no, that, that's I think that's fairly safe. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, there's a there's a bit or there's a there's a team of folks who are sort of like magical consultants or like not consultants. Troubleshooters, um, maybe. Troubleshooters, yeah. totally. <laughs> um 
with uh, with a, a varying skill sets in troubleshooting, you know, some of them, uh, you know, tinker and uh, research and others of them stab. Sometimes problems call for different types of solutions. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> I found them sort of like the, the emotional heart of the book. And I don't know if that's, you know, intentional or if that's just a product of me loving fiction about friends. Um, <laughs> but like... Was was that uh, established in the previous books? The the rookery, the idea of the rookery, or uh, no? They're they're new for this trilogy. Uh, so okay. yeah, they're 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 new, and for me, they are really at the heart of the trilogy. So I'm I'm glad to hear them. that's why it's rooks and ruin. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, the ruin part's pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But so so, what was it like um, coming up with them? Were they did they feel like were they characters who just sort of came to you full, whole cloth, or was that more of a like I have to think I need a person who does stabby stuff for this sequence later on? Sort of. It was a uh, uh, developing the core team was a really uh, it was an interesting process. So I knew I wanted this group. Uh, originally, I had uh, six of them in my planning, and it wound up being narrowed down to four uh, by the final draft of the book because it was just too many characters to juggle and really keep them distinct. So I wound up merging some, and I really wanted them to be a good team. So I spent a lot of time working on planning them. Uh, one of them, Ash, is actually based on a character that I uh wrote into a book that was never published that I wrote a long time ago and I really liked the character and I was like ah oh, this book you know there were there were other problems with the book it was never going to be published but I was, so I was like oh I could take I could take her and totally she'll fit really well on this team and I can just use her and not lose that cool character so that was great um yeah. Ash is great oh I'm glad you like she's, she's one of my favorites <laughs> mm-hmm. um and then uh I wound up originally the group had two leaders. There was Foxglove and Snapdragon, which were actually just ideas I had for names a long time ago. And then Snapdragon got phased out and it was just Foxglove. Uh, and then the others um, developed from a combination of, um, all right, well, I did think, what, what would you need on this magical troubleshooting team? You know, what, what bases would you have to cover in terms of their skill sets? And then, okay, and what sort of personality dynamics, you know, are going to be interesting, given that we have to have these skill sets and we have these people who've been working together for a while. And they all have their um, backstories, too, some of which you find out in this book and some of which you won't find out till later books in the series. So I worked all those out and how they factor into their skill sets and their dynamics with each other and with Rix as she meets them. Um, and uh, and it evolved a lot in, in revision, too, except for Ash. Ash was always Ash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. She, uh. She's so easy to write. I love her. <laughs> It's a it's a bold choice to give a, a character a sword with the name of Answer, uh, and it's it's one that pays off. <laughs> uh, yes, well, <laughs> uh, it's just such a yeah. I mean, it's such a clear point of characterization. Uh, <laughs> it kind of tells you most of what you need to know about her. I mean, there's more yeah. to her than that, but like, yeah. <laughs> no, totally. Like her arc, like um, where she ends up with another member of the rookery near the end of the book is hopefully not too spoilery it, um yeah that's vague yeah yeah no that's nice and vague <laughs> uh it was like a really nice moment i think um yeah especially how resp- mm. i'm just gonna cut this out i i liked the the romance um with the with and it was explicitly ace i guess I, I i i that made me i mean i'm ace so it was uh it was important to me to like you to shoehorn that conversation onto the page <laughs> to make sure there could be no doubt 
Yeah. It was one of those things that not knowing who you were as a writer, I, I started reading it and I was like, this seems really like sensitively drawn and I hope it doesn't get fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> and it didn't, which was nice. <laughs> yeah. I guess, so just like following that a little bit, like in terms of like how the characters feel as people, like I, I really, I really dug their dynamic. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, did that come out of all of the revisions and and the work on, on like you know once you had them as players in a in a space did they like organically become their own people or <laughs> there was uh some of them uh clicked a little more easily than others some of them I I found uh I sort of discovered them more and more during revision uh so a lot of their conversations would you know they're like cruddy early drafts uh of the. Uh, of a lot of these scenes where I was still feeling my way into the characters and finding their voices. And then I would do it again and like they click more and do it again. And now I feel like I have a much, you know, better grip on, on them all. Uh, but, but in, so in the drafting process, there was just a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them talking to each other. Some of them in scenes that wound up just being useless scenes, but it was really just me getting a feel for their dynamic and how they talk to each other and, and just practicing that and getting more and more into their characters so oh that's that's really interesting yeah that makes a ton of sense and i had never heard anyone talk about drafting in that way i've just like yeah you just write these characters out and they talk to each other and then you can cut those talks because they're not useful for the book but you learn who they are <laughs> i mean i wish i were clever enough to have planned in advance that these were scenes i was gonna cut that would wind up being yeah. useless <laughs> i'm not that cool but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it worked out that way which so that was good <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm. I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of like tabletop role playing. Um, yeah. Oh, it's a it's a lot like that. Like when you when you first play your character and you're still feeling your way in, and you have that weird like I don't know if I'm doing this right. But then after like five ten sessions, you're like, oh yeah, I've got this character voice down, and now I can just do this. Totally. Yeah. Like when you start out and you're like, I'm gonna do a goofy accent because like I'm I feel awkward about <laughs> trying to play somebody who's not me and mm-hmm. then you know the accent develops into something you're like okay this is a, a natural human voice <laughs> even you know or a natural elf voice or whatever yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I did that once for a character I played in a LARP where I had uh, I just I don't know I, I felt like I hadn't done enough work in, in coming up with and getting deep into the characterization so I gave her an accent and then after I played her for a couple of events I decided that um, it was fake it was an assumed <laughs> accent that she did as a distancing measure so she wouldn't feel too close to people <laughs> like, yep. and it wound up being this whole thing and that's a tangent but <laughs> that's I mean I love to bring like meta feelings oh, <laughs> on the game into the great. game and I would drop like, the yeah. accent when she was really upset about something and hope somebody would notice but of course nobody yeah. did they thought I was just falling out of character yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's excellent I that is that is going into my tool belt. Um, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, the the sort of continuing on, or maybe moving it on to theme stuff a little bit more. Um, I think one of the earlier themes I w- was picking up on heavy was uh, was family. There's a lot to do with family in this book, and I'm I'm wondering, do you write from themes, or do you like do you have a list of themes alongside your outline, or is it more just like here's a story and come what 
come of it what may <laughs> i try to write from character so like every character has particular issues that they're working with and for rick's obviously uh family is a big one you know especially she's got blood family versus found family and a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of complications going on with both of those um in her life so i mean i never i don't sit down unconsciously go okay this is the theme of the book because i don't know i i have trouble writing to that it's not i, I feel yeah. like it would kind of um i might try and get a little too heavy-handed if i was to give it that way but but i know that that for her that's something that's core to her character arc and her character conflict um so i was looking at it more from that perspective of like okay so it's start here's what family means to her and here's her relationship with her family and then here's how it grows and changes and here's where she winds up and here are the complicating factors and things like that yeah and it's i mean it would be hard not to uh, not for for her not to have a, a family, uh, an interesting family dynamic, I guess. Is, uh, yeah, given that, like as you as you sort of set up, she is somebody who has magic, but that it was it was broken when she was very young, so that it's uh, it's not life giving; it's just death giving, or at least yeah, she thinks that at the beginning, maybe or hmm. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then yeah, so but her like. Her grandmother is, like I mentioned very briefly, an immortal, uh, like, ruler of a land whose entire job is to, like, keep that land alive. And so that would be sort of her job, except for she has broken magic. And, you know, there's all the uh, all the delights of a sort of more feudal system where all siblings are, or like, siblings and children are in uh, contention for, you know becoming the lord uh, and as much as they may love each other they have a material interest in each other dying sometimes <laughs> gets a little complicated when immortality is on the line yeah totally yeah. <laughs> and maybe also a giant spooky castle with a door uh to something terrifying yes <laughs> <laughs> but i yeah so i think as the as that was it was family for me at the beginning, and then I feel like it sort of telescoped out, and the big theme I ended up coming away with was um, sort of a, a question of, like, obedience. It's a lot of characters who, whether through family ties or through, like, benefactors or whatever, feel like they need to they need to be obedient to somebody else, or they need to... Um, they, they owe something, and I don't know. I, I felt like it ended up... Um, this is another one of those moments where I'm in the middle of a thought and then I'm like, oh, right, I can't say that. Oh, no, I know. This book is so full of spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was my big takeaway was like obedience is a big theme and and the ways that that uh, works through stuff. Was there were there like things that you felt like you ended up working through when you were like, you know, you know, a character has these concerns and then writing them out? Does that ever feel like? you came to some conclusions you might not have? <laughs> um. Well, I don't know. I, you know, I know there's certainly, there are a lot of people who use writing as therapy, uh, basically to, <laughs> to work things through or come to conclusions or whatever. I, I don't do that consciously necessarily, but it's certainly right. true that sometimes when you're, um, it can be very satisfying sometimes to articulate something through a character that is a larger or more nebulous feeling that you have. And you say something like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I just, I've kind of nailed this through this character. This, uh, if it's something that's 
that's also something that you're dealing with in your real life. But I really want to make sure my characters and my story are all their own thing. I never want to let what I'm dealing with in the real world or my own life overpower that if I can, even if, of course, it's always going to inform it, you know, on some right. level. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and yeah, using writing as therapy, I'm sure works for some people. And also like therapy is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess um, to go back to some other character stuff, like I focused on the rookery earlier, but there's also like a lot of, um, I don't think they're villains as such, um, but there are a lot of, uh, a lot of folks with, that are at cross purposes with Rick's. Some more villainous than others, I guess. I'm wondering, does that feel, like, do you, do you approach uh, more villainous characters differently? Um just because of their position with relation to the protagonist? Or is it still just like, I want to build out this character to fit into these scenes and then go from there? So this this book was actually uh, a little bit different for me than my previous trilogy in terms of there really are a lot of characters who are working across purposes who are not, they're taking on an antagonistic role sometimes, but they're really not, I don't think of them as villains. There's not a lot of characters in this book who I would classify as villains, like maybe one or two in you know uh there yeah there are people who do some villainous things yeah but yeah um but uh you know and and a lot of the ones who at times are antagonistic i actually kind of like and then there's some Mm -hmm. who are at times not antagonistic who i don't like (laughs) you probably know (laughs) if you've read the whole book you probably could guess who some of those are but uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) suffice to say uh it was you know in, in my first trilogy i had a villain who was just terrible he he was really just an awful person and it was it's very it can be very uh satisfying to write that kind of like no this guy i just all i want is for you to want to punch him more in every scene he's in level of just evil but then with this it was different trying to write people who were um on a less grandiose cape swirling mustache twirling level and were more just like no they have different objectives they're making different moral choices um some of them may be assholes but some of them aren't some of them are just doing the best they can with the toolkit they have available and are maybe using some tools that uh that my main character wishes they wouldn't uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh so that was uh that was interesting and and of course every time i write a book that's different from the last book i worry like uh uh-oh what if, if I don't have a really clear, obvious mustache twirling villain? Is that okay? Is it okay that there's just a bunch of antagonists working at cross purposes and you don't know? You know, but but especially given that I was trying to create a little bit of a mystery too as to like, okay, someone here is doing, is definitely using some tools in the toolkit that they absolutely should not. And who, yeah. <laughs> who is doing that? And I wanted there to be enough uncertainty that like, well, I don't know, you know, some of these people seem like they might and some of them don't. And, you know, uh, so... Uh, I mean, originally, very early on in my concept for this, I had it as a more of a locked room murder mystery, uh, but mm. with but with lots of big magic stuff going on too. And then I just realized I was trying to make it too many different things uh, because a locked room murder mystery is a very specific plot format. But I had all this other stuff going on too that I had to kind of make that a smaller part of the larger whole. I, did you know it was going to be a trilogy at that point too? I did. This is actually uh, my first trilogy. I didn't know it was going to be a trilogy with this one. uh, I knew from the start it was going to be a trilogy, which has been a lot of fun, actually, because I've been able to kind of layer in stuff that will be different on a reread for people after they read the the next books, which was a lot of fun and layer in more long term plot hints instead of having it just all kind of stand by itself. 
Yeah, that's rad. I I mean, yeah, I asked partially because like I feel like the locked room mystery portion of a trilogy is usually like book two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Like yeah, you've had a book to like establish everything, and now you can like zero in. I'm thinking of like. I guess it's more like a like a cozy mystery, but the second book of the uh, ancillary series by Anne Leckie is very, um, you know, it goes from like telescoped out big space stuff to we basically spend ninety percent of this book in a room, <laughs> right? Which is which is easier to do when you have established the characters and the world building, mm-hmm. and and the reader already has all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an ambitious move to be like first book of a trilogy. Locked room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I realized that was that was not gonna work. <laughs> yeah. Uh I mean, but it, it does it does seem like it affects the, the DNA of the book in a in a real way, which is like an interesting thing, because yeah, like you said, it takes place over ba- about a week and um you have basically Gloaming Guard and like a handful of other locations. Like it's a very tight um you know, unity of action, unity of place sort of book, even if it's not, you know, strictly Aristotelian or whatever. Um, (laughs) uh, So I also wanted to ask about names. We may or may not have been alluding to a character named Aurelio at one point. Right. um, (laughs) You know, we talked about a lot of different possibilities with characters, but like, yeah, so the main character is Rixander or Rix. There's Kessa, Ash, Aurelio, Foxglove... And there's places like Viscander and um, Gloaming Guard. And, you know, despite having done a minor in linguistics in college, I am not really great with... It was more theoretical linguistics, and it was, you know, a decade ago. Um, <laughs> but it seems like you have a, a cultural unity, I guess. Like, these these all sound like names that would come from a particular place. Was coming up with the names uh, a process of, like, you know, researching, I don't know, Norse mythology or something? Or was it like, uh, this sounds fun, and so I'm going to use it? Well, uh, it actually, so, um, when I built this world, there's actually, um, in this book, you only have a couple characters coming from the Serene Empire, which um, originally, way back in early drafts of the first book of the first trilogy, it was going to be a uh, historical fantasy set in an alternate Venice. So I had all of these Italian names. And so the characters who are from specifically from Rivera, which is the capital of the Serene Empire, which again, doesn't come into this a lot, tend to have Italian themed names. Ah. So um, you have like a couple of characters with those. And then when I... um, when I originally wrote it, Vaskandar, which is the country where all of the action of the Obsidian Tower, pretty much, except for like right at the end, takes place. It was in the first book just going to be kind of this little, um, I, I didn't know if we were ever going to go there. And so I gave it a certain sound. And then it wound up being more and more important in the first trilogy. And now I have a whole, you know, trilogy that's kind of set there. So I've been trying yeah. to give it a consistent sound, but I, I didn't like map it directly onto any kind of real world language or anything like that. So it's been more just, um, I like language. So I've been trying to use the same kind of like syllable set or anything, but it's been more improvised without the level of world building that I might have put in if I had known what a big deal it was going to be when I first developed the country. Totally. I'm, I mean, playing around with sets of syllables is is such a joy. And I, I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to world build. <laughs> I, I mean, I like linguistics too, but only, you know, very casually. I had, I just, I took a couple courses in college and, and studied some languages and stuff, but 
not I'm not I'm not Tolkien. I'm not cool enough to build like an entire language just <laughs> for my fantasy world. Yeah. That's I I have some friends who have who have built an entire language just to write a single short story and I'm oh, like wow. that is it, very cool <laughs> and also holy shit what are you right <laughs> like I mean yeah that's hardcore if that's the thing you enjoy doing then it's worth doing it I guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one I've I've already had some trouble with uh, avoiding spoilers but this one is <laughs> there is an event that happens that leads some people to sort of question the capacity of of someone to be human even when they're not entirely human um yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah but it's it's like nice to have like really deep internal or like seriously consequential questions about philosophy addressed in a way that isn't like um you know moralizing or heavy-handed that is just like yeah these are like the question of what it means to be human is sometimes like deathly important or like genuinely life-changing or um um yeah like god (laughs) my words are just not going great today i think it's like actually one of the um one of the really cool things about fantasy and science fiction is that it gives us the opportunity to take these questions that for most of us are very abstract like what does it mean to be human and Turn them into like no, really. I kind of need to know. <laughs> like, yeah. this is this is suddenly practical and important, uh, but it's still philosophical. So you're still looking at it from the philosophical angle, but but it actually has this uh, very relevant, direct bearing on the story and on the characters' arcs and their choices. Um, and that's one of the many things that I find so exciting about you know science fiction and fantasy is getting to play with that directly and getting your hands really into these questions. Right, and I think yeah, that's that's a really good way to put it. But and I think the thing that like really struck me about that sequence in this book specifically was like that it was treated just like a normal problem, and that was like that helped me sort of like analogize it back to the real world in a useful way. Also, of just like this is a real question for like what does it mean to be human? Sounds very philosophical, but then when you like telescope it out a little bit to like what does it mean to be a citizen right that is suddenly a very important Mm -hmm. question to a lot of people um and like that is often premised on an understanding of what it means to be human yeah and so yeah getting to see not not just getting to turn that sort of abstract question into a real question but also getting to reflect back on it back into like you know the real world was I i think a thing that you handled like in a way, I've never seen anyone handle it before. It is as important to find out what it means to be human as it is to find an assassin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, well, I like, I like both those kinds of questions. Yeah. In, uh, as you can tell <laughs> in my books. Yeah. Um, yeah. <sighs> and it's more fun for me when people are struggling with the big, uh, gripping questions to have them approach them from a more I guess I'm a pragmatic person, so my characters tend to approach these things from a pragmatic angle too, as opposed to just from a more feelingsy angle. Not, which is not to say there aren't a lot of feelings tied up in it, because there very much are. But no, that's actually yeah, not a thing I had like pinpointed. But yeah, there's there's a lot of action in this, um, and I feel like there there's a lot of feelings that are that are more implicit than they are explicit, which is a choice, and it's uh, <laughs> it's a good one for this book, and. 
not you know universally good or whatever but yeah thank you i'm appreciating the book even more now as we're speaking (laughs) (laughs) well it was tricky because there's a lot of very dramatic things that happen that are very upsetting for my main character and it's always um it's tough sometimes when you're writing it and you you know uh you get to a point when it's like wow how is my character still doing what she's got to do in these circumstances? And I like one thing I like to think of, and this is another thing that comes up for me also in uh, in gaming and LARP and tabletop characters. I feel like one key thing about any fictional character is what is their flawed coping mechanism? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love stories where you get to see people's flawed coping mechanisms and be like, oh, that's not going to work out for you long term. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know? uh, uh, and that's part of why we, we why we love a lot of fictional characters is is understanding their their coping mechanisms and how bad they are for them. So you know, and I think that uh, Rick's tends to kind of kind of repress a lot of things and for future Rick's to deal with, which is going to be a real problem for future Rick someday. But uh, but it lets her get on with the action of the book in the meantime. So hooray! <laughs> it's and it's and it's like going back to the way that you are very good at setting stakes, like that that helps. Um, things keep escalating and you know we're in her first person point of view so we like get to watch her be like well this is fucked but um, there's also these other five fucked things happening uh, <laughs> so I guess I'll deal with this one right. um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk games with you very briefly absolutely <laughs> is that cool? that's totally cool I love talking about games <laughs> um so I I have been a you know a tabletop role player for basically my entire life. Um, I have not done a lot of LARPing, and I'm like hella curious about it because I feel like like one of the things I've been doing a lot recently is like just going around looking for like small um, tabletop role playing systems that like you know somebody just made for like a game jam or something right, released right. for like two or three dollars. And um, because D and D has such a stranglehold on tabletop role playing and has forever. Yeah. Um, and I feel like LARPing, you probably have to go and experience more systems uh, just because they don't have a and I don't think. Yeah, there, there's a lot of different systems. So the, the area that I'm in, um, there are a lot of LARPs that run off of the accelerant system because one difficulty that and I'm totally, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, there's this is deep, I can geek out about this for ages. So tell me if I'm getting into too much detail. But um uh, one of the issues that we're uh, running into is that, of course, you play a LARP and you learn the rule system and then you go and you want to just do like a weekend shift NPCing at another LARP, but you don't know the rules. And right. and it can be uh, so this is a, a very adaptable core rule system where even if you don't know the details of um of how you build a character or what the uh, magic system is or anything, you still know that if somebody hits you with something and says, you know, four damage by fire okay, I'm on fire and I took four damage. That's cool. Yeah. You know, like, it's <laughs> so you intuitively know what to do about that, even if you don't know why they can do that or, or right. any of the stuff like that. So, um, oh, that's uh, interesting. Yeah. And, it, um, so the LARPs that I play are all accelerant based, which th- now they, they haven't always been, but the ones that I'm doing now are accelerant based, which just makes it easier because then you can just like, it makes it easier to come and go and drop in and not have a huge learning curve every time you start a new one. That's super. I, I hadn't even thought of like, yeah, those design questions that need to be answered yeah. in, a, in a LARP setting, like, like a stranger doing something to you. <laughs> that right. Not, um... Right. And you can't be like, wait, what does that do? Hold on. Let me flip yeah. through my book. Uh, because everyone's running around and throwing things and, and, you know, hitting each other with foam weapons and you got to kind of be able to go with it on the fly. I love thinking about 
design for tabletop games especially also and it's also a rabbit hole i could go down for oh, like yeah. eight hours <laughs> absolutely i yeah i i have just started playing some single player tabletop role-playing games and that is a whole weird yeah. um, <laughs> I, experience <laughs> yeah i've never i've never done single player i've done just just recently i i wanted to get back into tabletop gming which i haven't done in a long time and i've never actually run D because um mm. i fear running D because <laughs> someone will always know it better than you at your table <laughs> Mm-hmm. so i just write my own systems so that no one knows it better than me and i can be like you know i don't know i don't like how that works we're just gonna modify that and there's nothing they can do <laughs> that's i i exclusively ran D for a long time and uh my my uh <laughs> i was telling this to some friends the longest D campaign i ever ran was about went for about two years um and i never gave my players experience points oh. um <laughs> And they didn't notice or care because <laughs> um, it just like wasn't the yeah. the mood of the table. Right. Um, yeah, I'm I'm heavily pro just modding systems and house ruling the hell out of them. <laughs> I, I made a very very simple one that's just storytelling driven, so that like you get to roll dice because rolling dice is fun and gives you a sense of control over and it, inter- it, it, it inter- uh, introduces randomness. You know, there's nothing like yeah. a good crit fail to liven up your table, but it's really very storytelling driven and very simple. And now actually, my sixteen uh, year old uh, daughter is running her first tabletop game using that simple system uh, over oh, uh, yeah over video chat. You know since everybody's stuck at home with her friends yep. and it's just uh, you know it warms my mother's heart to see my my little geek that fucking rules <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome <laughs> cool um okay so should we should we hop into the final reading sure okay I had to, I I was like I'm going to keep talking about this unless <laughs> I, <laughs> I know like off. it could go forever so this one is from early on in the book Rick's life is complicated when a diplomatic envoy shows up who rapidly becomes clear, does not necessarily have diplomacy as her primary goal on her mind. And this is when they're they're sitting down to have their first little talk. Okay. Nutty wood paneling sheathed the round room's walls, reaching up to a ceiling of living branches 20 feet overhead. Golden afternoon sunlight sifted down through the leaves, and a bird called sweetly from above. It was a warm and private room, perfect for welcoming an envoy, and encouraged confidences. You can speak freely here, it seemed to say. This place is safe. It didn't feel safe now. Even sitting at the far end of a long table from Lamiel, she felt about as harmless as a shard of broken glass. The mysterious, exalted Rixander. Lamiel's lips curled into a smile above her teacup. She cradled it in both hands, drinking in the almond-scented steam. I'm honored and frankly a bit surprised to meet you in the flesh. I half thought you were a myth. Shining pale hair fell loose about her like a mantle, and the mage mark stood out bright silver from her hungry eyes. She wore a gray vest coat of the softest leather, cut in the close-fitting, almost military style popular in Alivar, but trimmed with an asymmetric trail of dark leaves and delicate white flowers rather than mere embroidery. A subtle note of polished condescension in her tone set my teeth on edge. As you can see, I said, I'm entirely real. One hears so many strange things, though. She sipped her tea. That you're a ghost. That you're a crazed murderer stalking the halls of Gloamingard. She paused, gauging the impact of her words, cheeks dimpled with amusement. You can't believe everything you hear. I returned her smile through my teeth. Her lashes dipped, half veiling her eyes. Why, I've even heard that you're a skin witch. The teacup in my hand cracked, a hairline fracture spiking down from the rim. I set it down on its saucer, struggling with limited success to keep the anger from my face. This is my house, exalted Lamuel, I said, biting off each word. I am your host, 
Will you truly insult me at my own table? Her laugh rang out like little bells. Oh, I don't believe those rumors. How could they be true? After all, no skin witch in line to inherit a domain may be allowed to live by order of the conclave. To be able to use life magic on humans, you have to be a soulless monster with no sense of kinship to humanity. She gestured to me with one elegant hand, a motion like twisting a knife. Given that you're an athling and you're alive, well, you surely can't be a skin witch. I couldn't tell whether she truly believed I was lying or if this was simply another attempt to provoke me. Either way, this boiling rage that strove to burst out of me in scalding words would do me no good. Is there some point you're trying to make? I asked, my tone frosty. Lemuel shrugged. It's curious, that's all, she said. I'd heard that you killed a man with a touch when you were four years old. Only a skin witch can do that. Those cursed rumors again. No matter how hard I tried to patiently correct people to spread the truth, someone would always do their own mental addition and start whispering skin witch. I could hardly blame them. It made sense. I'm no more a skin witch than you are, I said. Keep smiling. My magic is flawed. If you say so, Lamiel winked as if we shared a secret. I curled my hand into a fist under the table, tight enough the leather of my glove creaked. It's the truth. I suppose your father should have expected something to go wrong, marrying a woman without any magic in her bloodline. She lifted her lip in genteel disdain. It was quite the scandal, as I recall. The Lady of Owls' own middle son, an exalted atheling in the direct line of succession, marrying some utterly powerless reverend diplomat. Such a waste. I pushed my chair back from the table and stood. I can see what you're trying to do, I said, forcing my voice to be viciously pleasant. I'm sorry to inform you that I'm not so easy to provoke. If I were, I'd leave a wake of corpses behind me. I gestured towards the door, precise and polite. Now, I'm sure you're weary from the road. Why don't I call my steward to show you to your guest rooms for some much-needed rest? Lemuel stared at me for a long moment, her face guarded and calculating. Then she slapped the table and burst out into a merry peal of laughter. I like you, Ricks. May I call you Ricks? No. The Lady of Owls has been hiding a gem all this time. We'll be great friends, you and I. She flashed me a too brilliant smile. I gave her a level stare and didn't bother trying to hide my loathing. I rather doubt it. <laughs> Thank you. Fucking Lamiel. <laughs> I know, I hate her. <laughs> um, so yeah, before we let you go, um, you know, buy the book, The Obsidian Tower, out June 2nd. Uh, buy the Swords and Fire trilogy, maybe too. But and is there any other ways, like uh, any preferred places to purchase that for you or any other ways people can support you or follow you online? Well, I'm always a fan of getting all your books through your local indie bookstore, if you can, or through uh, bookshop.org, which supports indie bookstores, or failing that through a big bookstore chain, because uh, physical bookshops need you now more than ever, much more than Amazon does. They're doing fine. Uh, but that said, you know, Amazon's also fine. Buy my books. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I'm uh, in terms of where you can find me, I am uh, pretty active on Twitter, uh, where my handle is, uh, it's Melissa Carew. It's M-E-L-I-S-S-C-A-R-U. It's just my name with, like, the ends chopped off because all the variants on Melissa Carew, so we're taken. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I have a website, but, you know, it's not super exciting. But you can check that out too if you want, which is uh, just melissacruso.net. Yeah, and then we also want to say thank you to WJ for our music, which you can find on SoundCloud, uh, and to Noah Bradley for our art. Um, You can find that at noahbradley.com. For the Spectology feed, you can go to uh, SpectologyPod on Twitter or email us at spectologypod at gmail.com. 
I am at Ben Laden on Twitter, B-E-N-L-A-D-E-N, and Patreon if you want to check out the long essay I wrote not that long ago about actual play podcasts and, um, you know, recorded tabletop gaming and how neat it is. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being on. This was like, this was lovely, and I'm sorry I was so scatterbrained. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Cool. Okay, I'm going to end my recording. Okay. Cool. <laughs>